1: I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in.
2: It is 5 a.m. at CNBC, and here's your top five at five. Stocks set to close what's been a tough first half of the year. S&P 500 looking at its biggest loss for the first six months in more than 50 years. Future is pointing to more pain on the way. A different story for oil. WTI on pace for its longest quarterly win streak. This as OPEC members gather to discuss output amid record energy costs. Deal vote delay. Spirit once again, punting its shareholder meeting on Frontier's takeover offer, the latest on the battle over the discount airline. Shares of RH sliding as the high-end furniture chain becomes the latest company to offer warnings about the road ahead. And security concerns in America's heartland. The farmland being bought by a company with ties to China. Just minutes from one key U.S. military base. It is Thursday, June 30th, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. I'm Seema Modi, in for Brian Sullivan at this hour. Let's kick off the hour with a check on the markets. Your money right now, futures pointing to a lower open, with a Dow down about 280 points, S&P down by 44. Nasdaq implied open down 163 points. Stocks Looking to close out what has been an incredibly tough first half of the year. Not counting today's action, the Dow is down more than 14.5 percent so far this year. Much worse than the S&P, much worse on the S&P, down just under 20 percent. Its worst first half start since 1970. And the Nasdaq being hit the hardest, down more than 28 percent. The tech heavy index on pace for its worst quarter since Q4 of 2008. Let's take a look at the bond market. That's what's been driving this market action. The 10 year yield holding, working to hold above 3%, the threshold right now. uh, Let's see, 3.06%. Investors also watching several key economic reports today, and that could, of course, move the bond market. Oil, let's take a look there. Crude holding steady ahead of today's big OPEC plus meeting. WTI crude at $109 a barrel, trading flat. Ice Brent crude at 116. In crypto land, Bitcoin, volatile over the last couple days. It is trading down by four percent. Ether also down by five percent. Take a look at this. Bitcoin and Ether both on pace for their worst month since 2018. Let's go worldwide right now. Rosanna Lockwood is in our London newsroom with a look at the early trade in Europe. Hi, Rosanna.
3: Good morning, Seema. Good to see you. And yet, unfortunately, a very similar picture here in Europe in terms of being heavily in the red this morning. The market's almost seeming to give up as we head towards the end of the quarter, end of the half. Very negative indeed. You're looking at two points off of the Cat Cahant there in Paris. We've actually had inflation figures through for France this morning. 6.5% inflation, rising prices there, causing trouble. And in fact, inflation concerns and the way that those central bankers that have been meeting in Portugal this week are going to react to that with aggressive policy tightening and then potential for tipping into a recession. That is what's overhanging these markets as everywhere else in the world. The DAX, meanwhile, in Germany, keep an eye on that. That's down 2 points, uh, 2% as well. One company in particular, Uniper, Utilities company. It's exposed to Gazprom gas supply from Russia with news that that may well be disrupted. It's had to cancel its outlook for the year and it has fallen uh, b- b- below 17.5% this morning. That company. Let's give you a look at the sectors as well. Unsurprisingly, seeing a lot of that reflected uh, through oil and gas down eight tenths of a percent, despite, as you mentioned, their SEMA and WTI holding up here in Europe. It's a negative picture as well for autos, down almost three and a half percent.
2: Thank you. Looks like stocks in Europe down roughly 2 percent at this hour. But let's get a check on some of your morning's top stories. Silvana Hanau is here with those. Silvana, good morning. Hey, Seema, good morning. Well, a key vote by Spirit Airlines shareholders over
4: the company's future facing a delay. The vote on the proposed merger with Frontier Airlines set for later today is now being moved to next Friday, July 8th. Spirit says it's making the move to discuss further options with Frontier and rival suitor JetBlue. This marks the second time Spirit has delayed a vote on its planned combination with Frontier, both Frontier and JetBlue, increasing their offers ahead of today's planned vote. Spirit and Frontier shares are higher on the news. It's a different story for shares of RH falling after it slashed its revenue outlook for this year. The high-end furniture chain saying it anticipates consumer demand for its products will continue to soften in the back half of 2022. RH CEO citing increasing mortgage rates, a decline in luxury home sales in the first quarter and the Fed's rate hike strategy for that projection. And Grayscale is suing the SEC over the agency's rejection of its application to convert its Bitcoin trust into a spot Bitcoin ETF. The SEC citing a failure by the investment manager to answer questions about concerns around market manipulation and investor protections in its decision to reject the application. Grayscale filed to make its Bitcoin trust an ETF back in October. But Seema, the ruling had already faced previous delays.
2: Wow. Big story there. Sylvana, thank you. You got it. Markets preparing to close out its worst first half of the year since 1970. Not factoring in today's move, the S&P 500 currently down just under 20 percent, hovering around 3,800. And according to the latest Delivering Alpha quarterly stock report, it's a mixed picture on where the index heads from here. 40 percent of those polls say the S&P has room to run and will finish out the year above 4,000. The other majority, 34 percent, saying it will hold above 3,500. For more on this and the Rough first half of 2022. Let's bring in Peter Bukvar, a Bleakley Financial Group Chief Financial Officer, and a CBC contributor. Phil Palumbo of Palumbo Wealth Management, founder and CEO, Chief Investment Officer. There, gentlemen, great to see you, Peter. I'll start with you. A lot of trepidation in this market around what the Fed will do next and if we will enter a recession. What's your take right now?
5: I think it's almost a guarantee that we enter a recession because that's what typically happens when the Fed tightens. And considering that the Fed is tightening at the most aggressive pace in 40 years in response to inflation at 40 year highs, I don't see how we avoid one. Mm -hmm. And we're already seeing the the immediate impacts, particularly on the interest rate sensitive parts of the economy like housing. You had mentioned what restoration hardware had said. And also, of course, it's had a a pretty quick impact on markets, which then has also a flu through impact on the economy. So the Fed seems to be intent on getting to 3% plus in the Fed funds rate. And uh, it's going to be really tough to avoid the economic implications of that.
2: Phil, if a recession is inevitable, then what's the best way to make money in this market right now? I mean, we've been telegraphed. We've been illustrating these uh, graphics showing just how tough this first half of the year has been for for investors.
6: So I talked about this on your show before the year started. That if you know, de-risking the portfolio made a lot of sense. People made a lot of money in nineteen, twenty, twenty-one. So hopefully, investors did that. If you did that you know, based on what Peter is saying, I agree with it that, you know, the Fed is expecting a miracle on Wall Street. And the reality is it's not going to happen, right? Just like Peter said, everything the Fed is embarking on, it's going to cause a recession, which means 10 to 20% more downside from here. So what you do as an investor, you got to be patient. There's going to be an incredible opportunity to buy great stocks of great businesses on the cheap. If you're a long term investors, you'll perform very, very well. The money to be made, a lot of money to be made, these are major bear markets, and that's what we're heading
2: towards. Yeah, I think you're, you, you say that investors should have uh, cash and gold. That's the best way to make money right now. Peter, what are your thoughts? Value, of course, has outperformed growth so far this year.
5: And, and I think that's going to continue uh, for not just this year, but for, for years to come. Uh, one reason, because the, the reverse took place over the past 10 years. And also a value stock already has low expectations embedded in them, so there is less multiple risk. Uh, I agree with Phil that on the bright side of a bear market is that incredible opportunities are created, but only for those that have the cash to use as dry powder to deploy it. And I'm also very bullish on gold and silver. And I do think there's going to be plenty of opportunities in Asian markets uh, as global growth slows. But Asia will be that I believe, stand out, I believe, looking at over the next five to ten years as even the, as the middle class in China in India, in Indonesia, and other parts uh, uh, continue to rise in prominence uh, in the years to come. You
2: no, know, it's fascinating you mention that because China, after months of losses, now staging its best rebound in the month of July since June of 2020 when looking at the K-Web China Index. But, Peter, another market I know you have an eye on is, is Japan, growing pressure on the Bank of Japan there to lift that, that cap they have on their 10-year yield. How do you think this plays out? And why is it important to U.S. investors?
5: Uh, I think this is the next big potential major event in terms of uh, the global bond markets. Uh, the Bank of Japan, of course, has been suppressing the 10-year yield at 25 basis point ban uh, in and around zero. And there's growing pressure that they're gonna have to expand that because of, of, of rising inflation and also other uh, central banks tightening around the world, and they're not. So I think that if they do, or I should say when they do, because I think they eventually will, Uh, you're going to see another round of a sort of an earthquake in in global bonds. And keep an eye on the 40-year JGB yield because it's the furthest Mm -hmm. out on their yield curve and it is least manipulated by the BOJ. And I think that'll give you a real better message from the Japanese bond market on how they feel about inflation,
6: what the BOJ is doing, and where the yen goes from here.
2: Phil, what's your year-end target for the U.S. 10-year yield?
6: I could see markets always overshoot, both on the upside and both on the downside. I wouldn't be surprised if we overshoot on the 10-year at 3.75 or greater. But then eventually, if, if, the, if I'm right about the call on a recession, yields will be lower at some point below that level. But in the short term, you can't see an overshoot.
2: Extraordinary times. Phil and Peter, appreciate you both joining us today. Have a great day. All right. When we come back, much more on the tough first half of 2022, including semis getting smacked, the big name in that sector, suffering steep losses. Plus, more on oil as OPEC prepares to talk output and amid record energy prices. Could the bloc take action to ease the pain? And later, President Biden set to wrap his trip to Europe, pledging to boost America's presence in the region to counter Russia. Arkela Taushi is live in Madrid with the latest from the NATO summit. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns.
1: What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. Edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
7: Canva presents stories to keep you up at night.
2: Welcome back. A check on futures on the final trading day of June and the quarter and the first half of 2022. Right now, Dow futures indicating... A lower opened by 1.1%, Nasdaq down nearly 2%. Nasdaq actually looking for losses of, let's see, yep, about 1.8% at this hour. As we close out June trading, let's take a look at the Vanex Semiconductor ETF, the SMH, on pace for its worst month and quarter since the financial crisis. And NVIDIA is the biggest laggard, down more than 40%. In the past three months, those uh, supply chain shortages continue to trouble this specific industry. Still on deck at this show, Democrats apparently nearing a deal to help advance President Biden's economic agenda, potentially getting one party holdout on board with the plan. Details on the key issues being addressed. Worldwide Exchange, back in the two.
8: Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block
2: Welcome back ahead of the final trading day of the second quarter. Crypto in a very rough spot with Bitcoin about to close out its worst quarter since 2011, hovering below $20,000. Worse for Ether on pace for its worst quarter on record going back to its inception as a cryptocurrencies, uh, which was back in 2015. Let's also check out the performance of oil prices as we close out the second quarter today. Brent crude is up more than 7 percent in the past three months. WTI is set for its ninth straight quarterly gain, which would be the longest winning streak record, on going back to its inception in 1983. The move comes as OPEC and OPEC Plus meet today, with sources saying no big policy changes are expected. But let's bring in Luis Dixon, senior analyst at Reistad Energy, who's been looking closer at. Luis. what could happen in today's meeting that could surprise the market?
10: Well, our view is, uh, like you mentioned, uh, according to many of the secondary sources, is that OPEC Plus is just going to really hold back on making any tricky policy adjustments today uh, because deciding what to do with supply uh, for September of 2022 onwards it's really in this volatile market, it's, it's a bit too early sort of to discuss the appropriate supply response uh, so far out. Uh-huh. So we expect this month to sort of be a rollover and that those uh, bigger questions are going to be tackled at next month's meeting. So then what
2: price does oil need to trade at? We have Brent crude at $116. What price does it need to trade at in order to encourage these leaders to take some type of action?
10: Well, for for OPEC+, Plus as a group of exporting uh, countries, uh, of course, the the, the main benefactors of of what you've mentioned has been uh, one of the longest and most sustained bull cycles of oil in in recent history. So for for the exporting nations, uh, they are not necessarily facing the same constraints as net importers. So the net importers, uh, the U.S., everywhere from the U.S. to Europe, to Latin America is really is really battling with inflation to compete against the stronger dollar to buy enough fuel to keep their economies running. Uh, you have to understand that most of the OPEC countries are not facing the same uh, immediate concern in their in their local uh, government discussions. Right,
2: but President Biden now just days away from his upcoming trip to Saudi Arabia, where he will ask. Uh, for the Saudis to help the U.S. with uh, transporting oil, getting more oil to the United States? How do you think that meeting will go, and how could that uh, impact where oil trades?
10: Well, this has been an initiative from the presidential administration for about a year now, and OPEC has not really been able to increase production. Um, That's not necessarily a function of, you know, not wanting to help out the U.S., but it's also they are facing a lot of, Uh, structural declines, whether that's out of West Africa. Of course, there's the big rush to supply hit. And then not to mention the sort of unplanned uh, geopolitically fueled outages in Libya and Ecuador. So if OPEC plus wants to increase production, it would really have to be a unilateral decision by sort of like, you know, the big producers, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Iraq, to really unilaterally decide to step in and intervene and try to alleviate some of the price uh, price issues faced today.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. Not just one country can make a big move. Louise, thank you for providing your analysis today on all things energy. Louise Dixon, have a great day. Let's get a check on this morning's other headlines. NBC's Francis Rivera in New York with the latest. Good morning, Francis.
1: Hi, Seema. Good morning. The January 6th investigation has issued a subpoena for former White House counsel Pat Cipollone to testify on the record. This after former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson described his rejection, rejection of then-President Trump's alleged efforts to join rioters at the Capitol. After nearly 30 years on the bench, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer will officially retire today. He was nominated by President Bill Clinton in 1994 and confirmed by the Senate in an 87 to 9 vote. The 83-year-old told President Biden in January that he would leave at the end of the term. He will immediately begin retirement on a historic note, helping to swear in his successor, Kataji Brown Jackson, this afternoon. She will be the first black woman to serve on the nation's highest court. Despite historically high gas prices and a summer of travel chaos, AAA estimates a record 47.9 million will travel this weekend. According to FlightAware, there are already over 8,000 cancellations and delays nationwide for today. Delta Airlines warned to prepare for a weekend with what they're calling operational challenges. Taco Bell is testing out two new menu items called the Big Cheese It Tostada and Big Cheese It Crunchwrap Supreme. Here's the thing though, Seema, they're only available at one location in Irvine, California. But hey, you don't have to get too creative to just go buy some Cheez Its, hit your Taco Bell, and shove the Cheez Its in the taco or whatever you want. Although friend. it
2: does look good, very tempting, especially <laughs> yeah. at this hour. Francis, great to see you. Thanks. Sure thing still on deck. Stocks set to close what's been a tough first half of 2022. More losses on tap when you look at the pre-market action. RBC's Amy Wu Silverman lays out why the market's unusual summer peace and quiet could not be the case. And if you haven't already, follow us on our podcast. If you missed Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify or other podcast apps. We will be right back. Stocks set to keep up the theme of 2022 on this final trading day of the first half. Future is pointing to solid losses at the open. The bitter battle over Spirit Airlines taking a new twist as the discount carrier delays a vote on one suitor's offer. Former airline executive David Van Miller lays out the next steps in this saga. President Biden set to wrap up his meetings with fellow NATO leaders as the group looks to solidify itself against Russia's increasing aggressions. Kayla Tauschi is on the ground in Madrid with the latest moves by world leaders. It is Thursday, June 30th. You're watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back. I'm Seema Modi in for Brian Sullivan. It's right around 5.30 a.m. here on the East Coast. And here is how markets and your money are looking right now. According to futures, it could be at lower open with the Dow uh, now down 375. So far, it has not been a great year for the bulls, not counting today's action. The Dow is down more than 14.5 percent so far in 2022, much worse on the S&P 500, down just under 20 percent, its worst first half start since 1970. And the Nasdaq being hit the hardest, down more than 28 percent. The tech heavy index on pace for its worst quarter since the fourth quarter in 2008. That was during the financial crisis. Taking a look at the bond market. Market, which has been this overarching theme of rising yields. The 10-year yield working to hold above 3%, right now at 3.05%. In the oil market, that has been a good trade for the bulls. Crude holding steady ahead of today's big OPEC plus meeting. WTI at $109 a barrel, up fractionally at this hour. According to the latest Delivering Alpha quarterly stock report, get this, oil is slated to finish above $100 by the end of the year. 37% of those asked giving that projection, a similar amount saying oil will actually finish above $130. 13% of those polls saying oil will either finish under $80. So a wide range of opinions there. All right, to some of the morning's top stories, Silvana Hanau is here with those. Silvana. Hey, Seema. Well,
4: Senate Democrats say they're seeing, quote, major progress on a plan to advance some of president biden's economic agenda sources telling nbc news lawmakers are closer to d de- to a deal to lower prescription drug costs as part of a larger party line package with a finalized agreement in the coming days the sources add while senate majority leader chuck schumer and senator joe manchin appear to have made progress on this legislation there's still no final deal on a broader bill tackling the reconciliation package dealing with energy and climate policy provisions and tax changes to raise revenue. Pfizer and BioNTech announcing they've signed a $3.2 billion deal with the U.S. government for more than 100 million doses of the Pairs COVID vaccine. The deal will include a reworked shot targeting the Omicron variant. The vaccines are expected to be delivered as early as the late summer. Some of the shots set for adults in the contract will be in single-dose vials, which are more expensive to manufacture but reduce waste of unused shots. And a wave of mega deals have boosted global mergers and acquisitions to $2 trillion in the first half of this year. According to data from Refinitiv, 25 deals, each worth over $10 billion, have been announced so far in 2022. That's up 12 percent from a year ago. Refinitiv ads overall volume deal is down by a fifth. It adds there are worries that some of the biggest deals like Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter that have boosted that figure may fall through or take longer than expected to close, SEMA.
2: And that's had an effect on the stock price. Twitter down 13 percent this year. Sylvana, thanks. You got it. To your morning's big money movers and that vote by Spirit Airlines shareholders over a potential merger with Frontier facing yet another delay. Spirit moving that vote, which was set for later today to next week, saying it will discuss further options with Frontier and rival JetBlue, both Frontier and JetBlue upping their offers ahead of today's scheduled vote in the increasingly heated battle for the discount airline. Let's talk about it with David Banmiller, Falcon Group president and former CEO at Aloha, Pan Am and Sun Country Airlines. David, great to see you. I mean, you are an expert in the airlines industry. Do you think the spirit Frontier merger moves ahead?
7: (laughs) Well, something's going to move ahead. This is like a kabuki dance. You know, or you have the music and somebody's left with the last chair. I don't know what is actually going on today. But now Frontier was very aggressive in going after Spirit. And as you may know, Bill Franke, who's the chairman of Frontier, used to own Spirit. So he's he's got his legs in both of these deals. JetBlue is desperate to make this happen. They've already made five bids. It's, it's Every day it seems to change. They upped their offer. And what I would suggest, one part of the offer is how much per share and what percent of the company. What's on the table now is Frontier will have 51 percent and run the airline under Bill Franke. But there's a lot of moving parts that, frankly, we don't know about. It's only the insiders that know that. And I think in addition to share price, what smart people are going to look at is if they get cash, that's one thing. If they get shares, what is the pro forma? For the combined companies, whichever they are, long term to create greater shareholder value. I don't hear people talking about that much, but it's very important.
2: You're calling JetBlue desperate if that's the case, and they don't win this bid for for a spare, what I mean, what what's another airline they could go after? What are your thoughts on their next move?
7: Well, Alaska grabbed Virgin uh, when JetBlue was bidding for Virgin Atlantic or er, U.S. Uh, so that's off the table. Sun Country kind of small. It's only 50 airplanes. So I think the real issue here is organic growth versus fast growth and facilities, planes and pilots. Example, if you grow organically, it takes longer, might be more expensive. Resources like Gates would be an issue. When you merge, like Frontier with Spirit, you get increased capacity, increased pilots increased gates and lower overall cost because you're not going to have the same overhead for either company. I think JetBlue doesn't want this combination of Spirit and Frontier because it's going to be a very hard competitor in a very low cost airline mm-hmm. environment.
2: David, if we see more M&A in the airlines industry, what does it mean for customers? Will all the concerns, will some of their concerns be alleviated? What they're seeing right now at the airport, flight cancellations, delays, does that go away?
7: That's not going away anytime soon, I'm afraid. July 4th, it's not gonna look good. You still have pilot issues, staffing issues. The airline industry has overscheduled to its capacity with human resources. And that's going to be around for a couple of months. The issue, I think, with with this combination, everybody talks, particularly the the government, the Biden administration, is going to talk about what's good for the consumer. Well, look, these two carriers are very low-priced carriers with low cost. That's not going to change. If anything, it would be more aggressive. So from a pricing point of view, I see the consumer benefiting from the combination of Spirit and Frontier. And if you were to ask me on the sidelines what should probably unfold, I think that's what's going to unfold. Uh, either one's going to be reviewed by the DOJ. Uh, I don't know when JetBlue gives up, <laughs> unless they just keep writing checks and break up fees because they've increased both. So I don't know what's in their head. I'm assuming these carriers. Have done long-term pro formas Mm -hmm. and know what kind of like going to an auction, right? Right. You got your limit as to what you think the other guy's going to bid and what you can afford. And I've been in one of those in an airline deal. And the other guy runs out of money. Now, I don't know what JetBlue's ultimate strategy is other than maybe stopping a tough competitor. Because they will be the fifth largest and a low, ultra low cost well, aside, between Spirit and Frontier.
2: Aside from Spirit Air, which is up 2% pre market, uh, American Air, Southwest, Delta, JetBlue, all trading down in pre market trade. David, we appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. David, Ban Miller. Take care. Today marks the end of a three-day summit among NATO allies and partners as the bloc looks to keep the pressure on Russia and China over their growing influence in the region, especially as the fighting in Ukraine shows no sign of abating. Chief among the topics discussed at the summit energy supplies and security, with leaders looking for ways to bring down prices and slow those inflationary trends. CBC's Kayla Tausche is on the ground at the NATO summit in Madrid, and she joins us now with a special guest. Kayla.
9: Good morning, SEMA. Western leaders are here in Madrid closing out the NATO summit, which comes after the G7 summit. And Western leaders are primarily discussing the concept of a price cap on Russian oil and gas as a way to choke off Vladimir Putin's war machine. And I'm joined now with the architect of that price cap, uh, Amos Hochstein. Uh, Thank you so much for being here with us. We really appreciate it.
8: Thanks, Kelly. It's good to be here.
9: So leaders agreed in concept to a price cap. Russia can produce oil at about $10 a barrel. So what's a reasonable price for that to land?
8: But first, what, what the major achievement here at the G7 was the G7 leaders agreed to a new concept where, that we're going to explore and we're now going to go out and talk to other buyers around the world and with the private sector to make sure that we explain the architecture and the mechanism of how this would work. And the idea is this. Instead of focusing on taking Russian volumes of crude oil off the market where the rest of the economy suffers. Is to really go at the revenues. So at the end of the day, that's what we're seeking to do: is to put economic pain on Vladimir Putin. So, what I mean, if he
9: refuses to sell oil or gas at the price that you want him to?
8: So first, we're not. This is not covering natural gas. This will only be on seaboard on, on oil uh, into the global market uh, and products. And look, that's where we're going to have to design the mechanism to make sure that I believe that he, it's in his interest to sell the oil. Uh, we're going to have to price it in the right way. Uh, to ensure that we get this right. We're still working on the mechanism and to perfect it and talk to partners about it. But I think that we, are, we have a good shot of taking away a lot of his revenues by reducing that price to consumers around the world.
9: Are India and China on board with this?
8: Well, we've start, we just get, got to the agreement at the G7 and uh, we're going to start the conversations. We've already started with, uh, with a number of the larger buyers. But this is also, it's not just for the largest buyers. Uh, it's smaller ones. We already have evidence that he is selling oil at extremely discounted prices. So that's already there. So we know that he's willing to sell it. You you know, there have been reports out there already by some of the buyers reporting at uh, 30 to $40 discounts in some cases, some places low, it's not even. So we know he's willing to sell it at a discounted rate because he needs the revenues for his war machine. We just want him to have less of it.
9: So you're trying to control the amount of supply that's on the market, keeping more supply out there. Uh, You're also trying to control the cost. But of course, OPEC Plus is the major producing group in the world right now. Saudi Arabia is the effective leader of OPEC Plus. The president will be traveling there in just about two weeks. How confident are you that Saudi Arabia can convince other OPEC member countries to produce more even if it can't produce materially more? And do you believe that it can't produce materially more, as President Macron said?
8: Well, the OPEC Plus countries already made a major shift in their attitude towards the market. Uh, a few weeks ago at the beginning of June, they announced that they are ending their policy of a, that they've been carrying since last summer when oil prices were rising, saying that no demand, the demand was not uh, justifying more supply. They changed that. They took, they brought the deal forward. They're increasing their supply, which will start on July and 1st. And the price
9: of oil rose on that news that day. Well,
8: I would say that the price of oil today, you know, on, we never look at oil prices on the day of anything. Look at it on a longer trajectory. We are at a place where the president is doing everything he can to make sure that there is enough supply on the market, that there's enough refining capacity in the United States, and that the consumers can pay, ultimately, a lower price when we are in the middle of a war. That is why he has ordered a million barrels a day of supply out of the SPR. Just imagine where we would be today without that. So when we get to OPEC+, Plus, I think they've already announced an increase for July and August. Uh, we'll continue to talk to, to them and to all producers around the world, as well as the producers at home in the United States.
9: You mentioned the reserve releases. The supply at the Strategic Petroleum Reserve has reached a 40-year low with all of the releases that have been announced. What discussions have you had with allies this week about whether there needs to be more coordinated releases throughout the fall? And how much does the current level at the SPRO factor into that?
8: I think we, are, we announced that we were going to release 180 million barrels over six months, a million barrels a day. The rest of the world announced 60 million barrels. That is going to be ongoing through the end of the year. Do you expect the the rest
9: of the world to do more now?
8: Well, I think that what we were trying to do is to plug a gap that exists where the US producers said that they were going to be increasing production, increasing capex. That's going to come online largely at the end of the year, somewhere in the 800 to a million, 800,000 barrels a day to a million. So we wanted to plug that gap. These are really difficult times when we're dealing with a war in the middle of Europe mm-hmm. uh, and heavy sanctions, and there's going to be a price to pay for that, and we acknowledge that. But we are going to do everything we can, whatever we can do, to reduce the price and to make sure that there's enough supply. I think we're doing that. price of gasoline is down a little bit from where it was the last two weeks of prices going down. Uh, we peaked about $120 a barrel just about two mm-hmm. weeks ago. We're now down uh, a few more dollars uh, to below 110 these things are going to fluctuate, but what we want to make sure the president announced that he's uh, calling on Congress and states yes. to reduce and suspend the gas tax. I think that's somewhere between eighteen and fifty cents. Congress
9: has said it's a non-starter. We'll see well, where that goes. We'll see. Finally, before we go, almost you work for the State Department. The State Department is reviewing the Line Five pipeline that comes in from Canada into the U.S. Has the president endorsed keeping that open as a way to keep prices? Low? Well, as
8: you just said, Kayla. State Department's reviewing that. I, I can't really share. When where. will there be a
9: decision? I,
8: I don't know. I'm sure that the State Department, folks who are reviewing the pipeline, will that will go through the process, and uh, I'll let you know when I know.
9: All right, we'll leave it there. Amos Hochstein, uh, the U.S. Energy Envoy, back to you, Sima. Kayla, great stuff.
2: Oil turning lower now at $115 a barrel. Stocks accelerating uh, their losses here in pre-market with a Dow down over 250. Coming up, lawmakers sounding the alarm over farmland being bought by one company with ties to China. Our Aim and shows the security concerns being raised worldwide exchange back in a moment. Growing concerns in America's heartland over a 300 acre plot of farmland recently bought by U.S. company with ties to China. The company says it wants to build a corn milling plant. But with the U.S. Air Force Base just 20 minutes away from the farmland in question, the multi million dollar development is raising some eyebrows all the way back to Washington, D.C. Our Eamon Javers with that story.
11: This is Grand Forks Air Force Base in North Dakota, home of some of the nation's most sensitive technology, including the RQ-4 Global Hawk surveillance drone. And this property sits just about 20 minutes down the road, more than 300 acres of prime farmland. Earlier this year, three North Dakotans who owned parcels here sold this land for millions of dollars to a subsidiary of a Chinese company that says it wants to build a corn milling plant. Now, that transaction has come under scrutiny here in Washington, D.C., where some in the intelligence community warn that the deal should be blocked, because it could offer Chinese spies unprecedented access to the American base. It's an only-in-America kind of fight, pitting the property and economic rights of a community against national security warnings from high-ranking officials in the nation's capital. The Chinese company at the heart of the controversy is the Fufeng Group, based in Shandong, China. Its American subsidiary says the company is not a threat.
8: We're under U.S. laws. We're Ameri- you know, I'm an American citizen, I grew up my whole life here, and uh, I'm not going to be doing any
11: type of espionage activities or be associated with a company that does. The city's mayor says he just wants to do business. It's a $700 million plant, so that would, would, would really be the largest uh, you know, single investment in the city's history. The FBI, you know, um, didn't say there was any immediate concerns. They said, you know, if you see something, say something. The Air Force hasn't taken any official position on the Chinese investment, but an Air Force major composed an alarming memo in April obtained by CNBC laying out what he believes to be the intelligence threat. He wrote... Some of the most sensitive elements of Grand Forks exist with the digital uplinks and downlinks inherent with unmanned air systems and their interaction with space-based assets. The Air Force says Major Jeremy Fox was only speaking for himself, but he's not the only one with security concerns. In a report released May twenty sixth, the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission wrote the location of the land close to the base is particularly convenient for monitoring air traffic flows in and out of the base, among other security-related concerns. That's why Senator Kevin Kramer says he opposes the project in his own state, despite the economic benefits it might bring.
8: I think we grossly under... Uh, appreciate how effective they are at at collecting information, collecting data, using it in nefarious ways. And uh, so, yeah, I just assume not have the Chinese Communist Party uh, doing business in my backyard.
11: Both the chairman and ranking member of the Senate Intelligence Committee told CNBC they also have concerns about the Chinese development. Now, the city won't build out infrastructure until next spring on this project, and the mayor tells me he's moving ahead with the project in good faith, but he also says he's still waiting to hear if the federal government has any official objection to the project. Seema?
2: Wow, Eamon, this is just such a fascinating story to think the Chinese could potentially use the acquisition of farmland here in the U.S. as a way to spy on us. Uh, you know, What are the people who sold the land saying about this?
11: You know, I talked to one of the three North Dakotans who sold land. And what he told me was, you know, he thinks that this is all overblown. He doesn't think these intelligence concerns really amount to just about anything. Uh, and he said, look, ultimately, you know, this is a global economy. We all have these cell phones in our pocket that were probably made in China. And he asked the question, you know, where do we draw the line? He sold his land for about $2.6 million. A number of other uh, people in North Dakota have sold land there. And this has really rocked this community of Grand Forks. There's been uh, some real anguish in the community. The man who sold the land told me he's been threatened uh, by his neighbors. People have put signs in his yard. This is a very unpopular decision up in North Dakota. But, of course, some of the defenders of the project say, hey, look, we just want to do business, and it's a global economy.
2: Yeah, fair point. Eamon, we'll look for your reporting on this. Thanks. Eamon Jabberts. On deck, a tough finish to the rocky first half of 2022 taking shape. RBC Capital's Amy Wu Silverman laying out the bullish sentiment she's seeing for the second half of the year. And if you are not signed up for CNBC Pro, now is the time with our July 4th weekend promotion. Join today for a special price. Head over to cnbc.com projuly and the number four, or just scan the QR code on the screen. You can see it right there. We'll be right back. busy day ahead for Wall Street. We'll be getting three economic reports at 8.30 830 Eastern, weekly initial jobless claims, the May consumer spending report, and May personal consumption expenditures, readings that will allow, uh, they'll follow June Chicago PMI at 9.45. Shanghai Disney also in focus, the Disney Resort reopening, and earnings continue with Constellation Brands, Walgreens, Boots Alliance, and Micron. Let's take a look. U.S. futures on this final trading day of the month and quarter. We're indicating right now a lower open with a Dow now down, uh, losing steam here, down 350 points. Stocks facing a tough first half, but not every trend is doom and gloom. Just ask our next guest, who is seeing some bullish sentiment when it comes to certain options activity. Amy Will Silverman, managing director and head of derivative strategy at RBC Capital Markets. It's great to have you on, Amy. So lay out what you're seeing right Now, why are you bullish?
0: Yeah, so it's interesting. This has kind of been a continuous theme, Sema, in the derivatives market, which is this lack of hedging, this absence of demand for downside protection. And then look, in some pockets, active bullishness. So, you know, when we kind of sweep across different sectors, different liquid ETFs, uh, we're seeing people start to buy upside in that long duration tech, in the queues. We've also seen it in China and then we're starting to see it revert back into energy as well. So, you know, things are changing because the derivatives market tends to be more tactical. And I do think investors are starting to pick their spots in some places.
2: What does what did the derivatives market tell you about the outperformance performance in Chinese tech this month? Can it last?
0: You know, it's interesting because we are starting to see some of those positions monetized. But I think what happened is when you look at the COVID lockdowns, when you looked at, you know, just the issues with the supply chain, Sentiment had gotten so bearish that tactically, you know, it did make sense. If you look at where there actually could be stimulus and growth uh, in the world of a, of a lockdown did end and things did recover, you know, you're just talking about the Shanghai Disneyland reopening, mm-hmm. you know, where do you really see those drivers? And so that's why I think you saw FXI, ASHR, KWEB, these are all China related ETFs, even BABA on the single stock side, they're seeing a lot of calls and call spreads activity being bought in the options market.
2: You know, Morgan Stanley came out with a pretty bearish note on Carnival, a name that I follow really closely, raising concerns broadly about the American consumer entering this potential recession, what it could mean, uh, you know, for spending going over going, um, you know, in the the next couple months. How would you be trading consumer facing
0: stocks right now, Amy? You know, one thing uh, we've been talking about a lot is really the next big meaningful catalyst not just for derivatives overall is going to be earnings and when they kick off in earnest and there's been this interesting dichotomy Seema because you know you haven't seen that much hedging there's been this lack of demand we've been talking about on the index and ETF side but you are starting to see that pick up on the individual stock side I only think that gets bigger and bigger as we sweep into earnings season and there have been two interesting characteristics for the last two earnings seasons, which is the move that options were implying heading into earnings season were way smaller than what actually happened. So, so stocks have been really blowing through the moves that were implied. I think that probably happens in a sector like XLY, consumer discretionary, uh, because, you know, we need to know about the state of the consumer. And if it disappoints the downside, you may get another Walmart target situation.
2: Uh, sticking with the consumer, Netflix is the worst performing stock right now in the S&P 500, Amy, for the year. It's down 70 percent. Could over time this stock be considered a value play?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, frankly, the Russell 1000 already considers it a value play. I just got moved into that index, Right. which, if you know, if you just kind of step back and think about it, it's amazing because this is one of our, you know, big fang man names that we always watched. And now it is it's a value stock along with Facebook. And so, you know, what I think happens is for investors who have to reweight and rejigger because they are value players, you'll probably see inflows into that name. And I do think, you know, for appropriate portfolios, it would be interesting to sell puts to commit to owning downside. I'm sorry, to owning uh, the position at lower levels. If, if, you know, you believe those valuations to be attractive.
2: No, that's fair. What's your year end target for the S&P, Amy?
0: That, that is the purview of my colleague, uh, Lori Calvacina, not myself. And I have to tell you that she has a way harder job than I do. So I'll move that to her.
2: Okay. Lastly, energy, would you be a buyer or seller here?
0: You know, our, our, our commodity strategist, Kaleema Croft and Mike Tran, you know, they've been talking about kind of the fundamental tightness that still remains in the market. And again, we're seeing that inflection point happen in derivatives. So I would still say there's probably likely still upside to energy, even given what's recently happened, and again, you're seeing that happen in the derivatives market with calls and call spreads starting to be purchased again.
2: Yeah, energy has been a winning trade for the bulls, best-performing sector so far this year. Amy, thanks for joining us today. Amy Silverman, that does it for us on Worldwide Exchange. I'm Seema Modi. Thank you for joining me. Squawk Box is
10: next.
1: You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only.
0: Positively FedEx.